This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The Mexican but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. The root causes of Central American migration, what are they and what can be done to address them? Joining me today is Rick Jones, a youth and migration advisor in Latin America and the Caribbean for Catholic Relief Services. Welcome, Rick. Thanks, Richard. It's great to be here. So uh, let's set the context first. You know, we've heard a lot about immigration and immigration crisis lately. Last month in in March of 2019, Customs and Border Patrol detained over 100,000 migrants at the U.S. southwest border with over half of those roughly being from Central American families. And that's a big change in migration patterns, as you know, because it used to be 20 years ago and up through, say, you know, 2008, 2009, the vast majority of people detained on the U.S. southwest border were single Mexican males. The numbers have gotten smaller, but the composition has changed. But we are seeing a definite surge, definitely compared to last year. So let's start out by saying, what do you think is causing the spike that we've seen over the last five to six months, and particularly the number of Central American families that are trying to get into the United States? I think there are three or four things we can point to that is really driving the spike in migration recently. And you're right to say the profile of the people who are coming has changed. We're talking about unaccompanied minors, children under 17, and women with children under two years old. Uh, The first big reason is violence. This is one of the most violent regions in the world in terms of homicides per capita. And recent studies demonstrate there is not just a correlation between the violence and migration. There is a causal link between violence and migration. The homicides have a lot to do with why people are leaving. The second thing in the recent flows of immigrants and migrants uh, are really people who are climate refugees. We are seeing in Honduras and in Central America, the dry corridor had in the last five years, four years of drought. And in one of the caravans that came from Honduras last year, 28% of those people were small farmers. That's something that we hardly talk about. And thirdly, a lot of people are leaving because the lack of opportunity, the lack of jobs, the sense of corruption in government, especially in Honduras, there was a sense that this is an illegitimate government that we have in the presidency that was elected through fraud. And so people are saying, I have no hope that anything will change here. And that really started to drive people to say, I have no other option but to leave. Rick, let's talk a little bit about the, sort of the mechanics of the migration. Clearly, what we're seeing also is a difference in the way that people try to migrate, particularly through Mexico, and that, uh, you know, there's this idea that going in a large group is safer. You know, that's what we've heard, as opposed to going with the, the coyotes. And then also that we have a new Mexican government, obviously, that has to sort out its policy towards Central American uh, migrants traversing its, its territory. Uh, up until last year, essentially the Mexicans just turned the other way and sort of hoped the problem would go away. And now it's kind of in their laps in terms of they have to deal with it. How much of this do you think is due to you know changing in political factors, or is it still primarily those drivers you talked about, the, the violence, uh, you know, the decline in agriculture, or is it you know a mix of everything together all, all at once? Yeah, I, I think that still the primary motivation for people is what's happening on the ground in Central America. It is the violence and climate change and the loss of the harvest that is driving people. 
what I like to say is pe- people aren't thinking about the wall or the politics in the United States. That's 2,000 miles away. When somebody has a gun pointed at you, you're thinking about that and leaving for that reason. Now, the fact that the policies are in place, I do think there is something that we all need to go deeper into and look at. What are the smugglers telling people? Uh, they're really trying to, I think, entice people to continue to leave in the flows of migrants because that's how they make a profit. Uh, they make a profit as people continue to migrate to the United States. And because Mexican migration has dropped off in the last decade, they're going into Central America to drum up business. And this is the second most lucrative thing to the drug trade is human smuggling. So, Rick, let's talk about Catholic Relief Services and and your role in it. Unlike a lot of people in Washington, you probably actually know what you're talking about because you're down there, you're doing, you're not just an analyst, you know, looking at data, you're you're in country and have been in the region for quite a while. And so more than that, um, Catholic Relief Services is obviously not just a think tank, it's a service provider. So tell me about uh, the Catholic Relief Services organization. I mean, it is a ministry officially a part of the Catholic Church. That's right. We're owned by the Conference of Bishops in the United States. And my understanding is that CRS works with non-Catholic organizations, but it's guided by Catholic principles of, uh, you know, provision of aid to the poor and migrants and defense. That's right. Exactly. We we serve people on their based on need, not based on creed or nationality or race or or religion, really. And CRS uh, has been around since World War II. We actually got our start working with refugees uh, in Europe and in the United States and, and placing people and then started to do humanitarian aid around the world after that. And today we're in over 110 countries uh, doing both humanitarian aid, development, as well as advocacy on peace and justice issues. And in Latin America, we've been there uh, for almost 60 years now, uh, working on uh, addressing poverty, development, and peace and justice issues. So CRS started in Latin America. Was it always dealing with migration, or was it dealing more with developmental issues on poverty alleviation and stuff like that? The CRS started, actually, with Alliance for Progress okay. and, and the it, U.S. In the government 60s, right, in the right. 60s. That and was a Kennedy we, program. That was a Kennedy program, and we were part of the food aid packages that went along with that program. And then, I think, as time went on, we began to see, well, people need more than just food aid. They need seeds and tools And then as the conflicts came up in the 1980s, they said, we need to address human rights and fundamental democracy issues. And CRS evolved as the region evolved and the needs evolved as we understood it. You mentioned earlier sort of the primary driver right now is violence. And as we know, in the Northern Triangle countries, it's a really serious problem and particularly sort of the, the gang violence aspect of it people talk about it, it almost seems like this sort of hopeless, vicious cycle in that the small governments become corrupt or they don't have the ability to address or control the gang violence. They either leave or, you know, sort of they give in the gangs. If you're a young person growing up in those countries, you don't have a lot of choice, right? What is CRS doing or and have you seen any success in trying to address those problems, particularly at early ages? First, let me talk about, I do think there is some success and it's very important because the U.S. government has actually contributed to this in the foreign aid uh, that's right now on the table and about to could be cut and, and taken away from the table, has actually been very effective in addressing homicides. The U.S. government brought the homicide rate over the last three years down in El Salvador from 108 for every 100,000 people down to 52. Those are a mi- cutting in half the homicide rate is a real true accomplishment of foreign aid, and USAID actually led that battle. So I I just want to point that out before we uh, abandon wholesale 
aid to Central America, there are some programs that have been very effective. What we've been doing is both addressing the violent side and giving people opportunity. For example, we run programs at youth workforce development. Uh, young people who haven't finished high school need to get a job or develop some income and a reason to stay. And over the last several years, we've worked with over 10,000 young people who are from the poor and marginalized, gang-infested communities, and we've been able to place 80% of them in jobs, back in school, or starting their own business. This is a very successful program that shows what can be done, and it gives young people a reason to stay. And so tell me a little bit about the mechanics of the program. First of all, what, what age are we talking about? Is this sort of like 15 to 20, that sort of Yeah, so we're, we're talking about young people who are out of school and unemployed okay. who are between 15 and 25. Got it, okay. Young men and women. And is it a job training or job skills, or what sort of training do they So it's get? a very comprehensive program because we know that these young people, the school system has largely failed them. So they have issues with basic literacy and numeracy, um, and we need to build their skills. So we combine uh, soft skills in leadership, communications, problem solving, along with hard skills in vocational, and then help these young people place them in jobs or start their own businesses when they finish the program. Is CRS a target of the gangs? Because it would seem like, you know, the government would love what CRS is doing, but if you're a gang member and you see your potential, or a gang leader, right, and you see your potential recruits going off and getting skills and leaving the gang and so on, I mean, how does CRS deal with that? We So we, we have not been specifically targeted by the gangs. In a few communities, we've not been allowed to enter because the gang, the local clica, has said, we don't want anybody in here. And so we don't. We know that just like everybody else in El Salvador, to go into certain neighborhoods, you need to talk to the authorities, you need to talk to the gang members. In most places, the gang members want us in the community providing opportunities for young people. Um, and so it's not what you think, that they don't want anybody else around. Uh, we work with microcredit institutions, and I'll tell you one quick story where uh, some of the gang members stole and beat up one of the credit advisors from this microfinance entity. The following day, all of the money that he had on him and his wallet and all of his belongings came back to the agency with a note that said, we want your company here working in the community. You guys serve our community. And it was from the leader of the local gang. So I think we need to be careful about how we perceive that and, and what the local gangs actually want for those communities. We also work inside the prison system where there are gang members, guys who have left the gang and non-affiliated gang members, and all of them are saying, we want you here helping us do the rehabilitation work that you're doing. What is the business model, so to speak, of the gangs? I mean, are they in it for the money? Are they generating uh, revenue through illegal activities? Or is this more of a you know, solidarity, be a, be a member of a tribe or organization for self-respect or, or whatnot? Or what, what's the primary motivator for the, the gangs exist. I think that's a critical question to understand how, how we think about the gangs. This is not a mafia where the primary purpose is the accumulation of wealth. The gang's primary purpose is to protect its members and its territory. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't engage in illicit activities to generate income, but if you take all the extortion money that they collect it would, and redistribute it among the members in El Salvador, it would be about $30 a person. So you're not in it for the money. Uh, they're taking the extortion money. A lot of that goes into actually legal fees for the guys who are in prison. It goes into buying drugs that they're selling on the street to buy weapons to fight back either the other gang or the police. 
and so we need to think very carefully about what is the purpose of the gang, which is protection of its members and its territory, and why are they extorting people? And as the violence spirals and there's more pressure, they seek to buy more weapons, and so the extortion money actually goes into that. So it drives us, there's a spiral that get, has gotten out of control, really. So this seems to be a significant difference between what we see, for instance, or saw in Colombia and in Mexico, in which you had these well-armed, well-organized, primarily drug cartels that were extremely violent and engaged in some of the same activities, but was really the primary motivation was the business model of, of right. making and moving drugs to the United States. That's right. I think the cartels are really in it for the accumulation of wealth. And if you look at them, they're more comparable to a multinational corporation, and they're diversifying. Now, not that the gangs don't do heinous crimes or commit these things, but their purpose and motivation is different. And I think we need to understand that in order to design the kinds of responses that will be effective. You talked about the U.S. government had, uh, was it through USAID that had a program that reduced the gang violence? Yes. What did they do that, that was a pretty stunning statistic from, you, know, you said 108 to 52? Yeah, per... over, the cor- over the course of about four years. Okay. So I think some of the things that they've done, one was a, a very targeted program to reduce, targeted toward families of young kids who are likely to get involved in the gang. And so to shut off the flow of kids getting into the gangs, that's one big thing. So secondary violence prevention is a critical component to what they've done. Secondly, they worked with the police force to do much more place-based effective programming. And by place-based, meaning they were not aligned in terms of where are we doing development, where are we doing security programming, and you need all of those things in the same place. And so they started to align that kind of programming where we're providing opportunity in the same places where we're improving the the policing and security in in a place-based strategy. And that has proven to be very effective. And then improving the policing tactics um, as well as improving what's happening inside the prison system. Because Central Americans with the iron fist policies that they were implementing were just sending all the kids into prison and as I put it, you come out worse. They came out more it was like universities for yeah, crime, right? Absolutely. They got a graduate degree in organized crime. And so what, what needed to happen there was shutting that off, shutting off their access to the communities, which USAID helped to do, and then fostering rehabilitation. And we're actually working with the International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Agency about doing rehabilitation inside the Salvadoran prison system. So you're based in El Salvador, but you're up in D.C., and I take you didn't come up just to look at the cherry blossoms and, <laughs> and do sightseeing. You're, you're obviously up here talking to policymakers. What are you telling them or what are they telling you in terms of what the United States should be doing and not be doing in terms of our policy towards uh, aid in Central America? Well, it, almost everybody we've talked to, Democrats and Republicans alike, are saying it would be a very bad idea to cut off the aid wholesale. That was is not a strategic idea. There is parts of this aid that is very effective. Taking ourselves out of a leadership role in aid would just open the door for China to enter into that. And so all of them almost agree that just cutting us off wholesale is a bad idea. And now, you're hearing it from both sides. Both sides of the aisle. And so I think I think that and that's one of the things that I came up here to do was to just talk to people about cutting this, cutting all the aid is a bad idea. It's counterproductive. It's not going to help security in the United States. Um, any kind of border security that the United States wants to has to include something around addressing the root causes in Central America. Is it um, is there a government to government problem here? Is do 
Do, uh, does the U.S. government feel like they're not getting sufficient cooperation from the Guatemalans or El Salvadorans or Honduran governments in addressing these problems? Or is it just frustration that it's not working as fast enough to stem the, the flow of So I, I think it's, it's important to remember that not all the aid from the U.S. government goes to the governments in Central America. A lot of that goes to organizations like CRS and, and other U.S.-based organizations who are actually carrying out the work. So cutting off the aid would also hurt U.S.-based organizations who are actually doing this. I do think on, on the ground, uh, the, the embassies are working with the governments, and as difficult as sometimes that may be, they're finding pathways to work with people. Uh, they also recognize there is a lot of corruption, and we have to deal with that um, and find ways to address it in the region. So I think some of the criticisms are fair that there is corruption, but also some of the aid, they're finding ways to be very effective. And so we need to be careful about, again, how we think about where the aid goes, how it gets in, how we work with the governments, and who we can work with in, inside the government. Are the Central Americans also learning from each other? Because it, it strikes me that you have this collection of, of uh, countries that are all somewhat similar in, the, in terms of size, in terms of... Um, ethnic background in terms of their you know position in trading and so on, um, but yet you'll see differences, right? Significant differences between the countries in terms of homicide rates, in terms of poverty rates. Uh, are there sort of lessons learned over time from the the countries that manage to lower that rate and keep it low, and and are those uh, those lessons transferable? You know, because right now you said it's El Salvador that has the highest, right? But that hasn't always been the case, right? No, no. At points, it's been Honduras. At other points, Guatemala Guatemala and El Salvador. We would like to hope that that's the case, that these governments are learning from one another. It doesn't happen easily despite the small size of Central America and that, you know, it could be a small corner from New England. Mm -hmm. Basically, that's the size of of the population that we're talking about. El Salvador about. is like the size of Massachusetts, right? Yeah, we're, we're talking about uh, 36 million people throughout all of Central America. So it's not a huge population. And just the Northern Triangle, uh, you know, is maybe 20 million people. Uh, and El Salvador is tiny with 6 million people. But uh, so we would hope that the co- countries are learning. I think there are lessons learned. Certainly the civil society organizations are sharing lessons learned about how do you work with gangs? How do we... What are we going to do to address this problem with addressing families, uh, reworking the prison system? We're about to foster an exchange between Honduras and El Salvador to talk about the prison system and what's working and what's not in each, each place. We've done this in the past. That's been very effective. For example, years ago, we brought the Central American governments together to talk about human trafficking and to harmonize their policies and approaches because it's a regional problem. And it was very effective, and I think the governments, all, they all learned one another, and they created po- protocols that were very similar across the countries. So I think this can be done, but we need to be consistent. And when you have different electoral cycles and you know presidents are changing in one country over the other, we just had elections in El Salvador, we'll have a new administration, new elections are going to be held in June in Guatemala, and so... When, when the players are, are constantly changing, that, that complicates it a little bit. Is there a role for other governments besides the United States to, to play some sort of, um, whether it's aid or mediation? Uh, and here I'm specifically thinking of Mexico. Are there other governments in the region that can step up and either in, in dispensing advice or money or, or good offices to help uh, any of the Central America? I, I think Mexico is a pivotal player in this whole thing between being the transit country and sometimes the destination country for the migrants, 
uh, being a huge market for Central America, having a lot more wealth to be able to actually invest in Central America. So they're critical to coming up with the part of the solutions. And we can't just look at Central America is a tiny market. There are small countries uh, on their own and governments that are relatively poor. You need a larger size, mid-size that's a strong, relatively wealthy country within the region to help the United States really be, be much more effective. Rick, now we get to sort of my favorite part of the show where we get to talk about you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you said you've spent uh, there uh, almost 30 years in the region. Uh, you don't look like a real old guy. So uh, <laughs> this has been a significant chunk of your adult life. You know, how did you get to work in the region or start working in the region? Um, tell us how you ended up at CRS. And then, you know, or, or we can start from, you know, where are you from? Where were you born? Where did you grow up in the U.S.? So, uh, well, uh, let, me, let me start with how I got to El Salvador, because okay, I think that's the core of the question. And it really was, in the 1980s, Central America was the foreign policy issue, right? Everything in the news, it was the Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq of today. And so if you were paying attention to foreign policy, you were involved in that. And so as a young student, I was involved in thinking about Central America, what could be done about what was happening there, the wars. And certainly, as I, I was Catholic, raised as a Catholic, and... When the Archbishop of El Salvador was killed, I was 15 years old, and I thought, holy cow, why did they just shoot and assassinate an Archbishop, an Archbishop Romero? So it was in my awareness of what was happening. By the time it got to 1989 and the, you know, the Berlin Wall, the, the communism was ending, they assassinated six Jesuit priests, their housekeeper, and her daughter. And I had been very involved with solidarity with the poor in Central America from the United States and thinking about what was happening there. When they killed those people, we knew that the end was very close. And I was very affected. I was educated by Jesuits. Mm -hmm. I had been down there on fact-finding missions. And so I, I called up a Catholic priest that I had met in El Salvador and said, I'll come down and I'll do whatever you want. And so I ended up going down there and working for the Catholic Church, living in a community of people who had been internally displaced by the war. In and El Salvador. In El Salvador. So I worked in a community uh, and basically with a group of people who uh, had been displaced. The person with the greatest education probably had sixth grade education. And yet these people were incredibly organized. They had a vision for what they wanted to do. They cleared off a garbage dump and built the houses themselves. Talk about, you know, and these were people who had left their homes with nothing but their backpack on. And as a community organizer, when I worked in the United States... You know, if you didn't have food and coffee, nobody came to the meeting. And here were people who had nothing, and everybody showed up, and everybody had something to say. And people were collaborating for their own development. I said, with this, I can work with this. So this was about 1990? That was so? 1990 when I first went down. Okay. And so where did you come from? Where I'm originally from western New York in a little town uh, in between Rochester and Buffalo, uh, and I went to school on the East Coast to Boston College. Okay. Did you have any family connections to Central America previously? or No, there were no. no it was just that was what was in the news, and we were all right, talking right. about it. And when I was in college, that was the issue uh -huh. of the day. What did your parents do for a living? Uh, my father was a veterinarian, and my mother was a school teacher. Were they surprised by your interest in foreign affairs? or? Uh... Actually, you know, my father was went to Cornell, was very well educated as a veterinarian, and my mother was a school teacher. We were constantly exposed. They traveled a lot. We were constantly exposed to what was going on in the world and encouraged. And I actually went abroad when I was 15 years old and lived in Mexico with a family on an exchange program. And so that was my first exposure. I loved it. I went from a town of 5,000 people to the biggest city in the Western Hemisphere that at that time had about 20 million people in it. And I loved it. 
So you have a you have an interesting point of contrast. I mean, you're not just comparing uh, Central America to a few years ago. You can compare Central America to 1990, 1989. Um, so we've seen a lot of changes in terms of political, uh, economic, uh, you know, quite a few. So I'm, I'm sure that probably helps your analysis in terms. Yeah, of- I, I think having a, a long term perspective, you can see really one of the deeper issues that we're constantly struggling with. Whether those real systemic things that need to be addressed. And we're actually, right now I'm engaging with other people to say, what are we going to do now in Central America? There have been, we just ended in with the elections in El Salvador, for example, it's the end of an era. The, the person who was elected really breaks with the two parties who had been running the country during the war and for the last 25 years. So this is a real historical moment. Now they still face all of these major constraints about what are you going to do with the land? It's the most deforested country in the hemisphere. The water, groundwater is contaminated. You have a historical perspective that now is really, there is a historical opportunity here um, and all of the issues that it will take to really address this on a deeper level. Rick, one final question. Coming back to the politics of this, we have presidential elections next year in the United States. Um, obviously, the issue of migration, caravans, et cetera, was a big deal for a while last year. Do you think this is going to play a role in the next presidential election? If so, do you think Americans have or will have sort of a, a better understanding of the dynamics involved here? Uh, I definitely think, given where the rhetoric has been, this is going to continue to be an issue. It's been used as a political issue uh, during the last midterm election, and I wouldn't be surprised if it continues to be uh, used as a political issue and a political football during the presidential election. Um, I'm hoping that people can get more informed about exactly why people are coming and that not only do you, if you want border security, you not only need to address issues at the border, you need to address why people are coming. That has to be. Migration and- In a sense, div- it's too late, but if they've got the border, you've That's already- That's right. You're, you're, you've already missed part of it. If we're really going to address this, and we really need to understand that migration and development are connected. You know, they're, the people who have come here and, are, and that our policies are actually contributing to the problem. You know, the, the fact that you, it's hard to get into the United States, and there is almost no legal way to get here. And- by creating this wall and all of the policies making it difficult, because there are jobs on this side of the border, what that has done is create a black market. And smuggling, as I said, smug- human smuggling is the second most lucrative thing to the drug trade. If you didn't have all of those policies and you had a legal pathway to get into the United States from the region, you could solve this problem. I'm pathologically optimistic, and so I, I kind of think that the Mexicans are being much more involved in this question than I think a lot of people thought, and the new government seems to be open to some sort of cooperation. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. It seems like we've, we've got an opportunity there, at least for a while, uh, since the United States and Mexico have been working well on security cooperation, to maybe look at this jointly as opposed to you know, bilateral or uh, separately from the, the bilateral. Yeah, there was a whole process for a while called the Puebla process. Yeah to bring the whole region together. And I think that needs to get resurrected and refocused. And Mexico certainly can play a role right now in terms of providing people asylum. And then I think where they need help on that is building the institutions that are capable of receiving the migrants, placing them, and making sure that they're protected in Mexico. So there's a, we could go on talking about this for quite a while, Rick, but um, it sounds like you guys are doing good work down there. So I sort of commend you and the work of the Catholic Relief Services. I think we're going to be hearing quite a bit more about this. And thanks for coming on. Thanks, Richard. 
Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at CSIS.org.